What's up, Cyber and Crypto friends? Today is Tuesday, November the 26th of 2019. This is episode number 95 of the Cybersecurity and Cryptocurrency Podcast. I'm your host, Eric English. All the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely my opinions and do not reflect that of my employer. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at CyberCryptoGuy. All right, sorry for the little hiatus there. I was a bit under the weather the last couple of weeks, so took some time off to get well. But I'm back in the saddle again right here before Thanksgiving and uh, ready to rock. So there's been a bunch of news. Uh, Bitcoin's really hurting my wallet right now, so we'll, we'll talk about all kinds of fun stuff today. Uh, I'll kind of run down the list here. On the cybersecurity side of things, uh, there's a whole bunch more uh, Facebook issues that you should be aware of as far as privacy goes. There's also, of course, yet another massive uh, data leak that was out there on the web. So we'll talk about that one as well. We're also going to talk a lot about uh, APIs and some of the recent hacks that have come out with APIs. We'll also touch briefly on T-Mobile and what happened to them. Also going to talk about Disney Plus and some of the password leaks that came from that. And see if we can get to the bottom of, of how that happened. We're also going to touch on some uh, new vulnerabilities that have come out, um, which both have said they're kind of, whoops, we didn't mean to do that kind of things, but uh, relating to Facebook using the cameras on our cell phone devices. So this happened to uh, not only iPhone, but Android as well. So we'll talk about that a little bit. We're also going to talk a little bit about some new multi-platform malware that's been coming out more and more frequently here. So we'll talk about that as well. We'll also talk about public USB charging stations. I thought this was really interesting as well, so talk about that too. And on the cryptocurrency side of things, of course, we're going to talk about the, the price fluctuations and kind of how that all started. And hopefully we can figure out where it's going to go from here, but uh, we're definitely going to talk about that quite a bit. Also going to talk about uh, the, UK, the Ukrainian railways and uh, what they were doing with cryptocurrency. In other crypto news, we're also going to talk about GitHub, the online crypto wallet, and the data breach that happened there. We're also going to talk about China and what they've done to Binance's office in China. We'll also touch briefly on JP Morgan and what they're doing with uh, testing a new blockchain system for automobile inventory. So we'll talk about that too a little bit. So that's it on the cryptocurrency side of things. And then for a kind of a sidebar topic, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, two of the biggest or bigger uh, spam filtering providers out there, Proofpoint and Mimecast, and kind of what those differences are between the two. Uh, I've migrated to and from each one of those, and it's interesting to see the differences. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about that as well. All right. So to kick things off here. Let's start with the cybersecurity side of things, since there's a lot more to cover there. Some of the big news over the last few weeks has been, of course, Facebook and various issues there, as far as privacy goes, anyway. And some more news even came out today about uh, Facebook and Twitter, apparently, as well. But uh, today the news was that uh, a couple of different third-party software development kits uh, were you that were used by you know hundreds of thousands of Android apps were basically caught holding unauthorized access to users' personal data 
uh, that was associated with their connected social media accounts. So the fact that these SDKs and the, all these various apps and app creators were keeping this information somehow is, is certainly scary. It's also concerning because it makes you wonder how many more are out there that we don't know about. The uh, software development kit was developed by a company called One Audience, and it had a. That's, I mean, this is a pretty, pretty big privacy violating issue here. But essentially, all this personal data was kept on the One Audience servers. Uh, they're also mentioning here there's another software development kit called Moby Burn. Uh, they're also under investigation for very similar uh, data exposure. So both of these SDKs are used to collect users' behavioral data and then basically use that with advertisers for targeted marketing. And I think we all kind of already knew this, this kind of stuff was happening. So I'm not too concerned about that particularly. But what is concerning is the, the fact that they, they keep all that information and for how long. Um, that's, that's what's scary about this whole thing. And also, too, why would these... SDKs have access to any personally identifiable information. They they shouldn't, right? They shouldn't have access to my password, my, you know, anything, really. Um, but apparently, both of these uh, SDKs contain the ability to stealthily and uh, basically covertly uh, take all that personal data, and essentially it's data that you had otherwise only authorized app developers to access from your Twitter or Facebook accounts. So all that to say that both of these SDKs can harvest that personal data and you would have no control over that data harvesting and you basically just are at the mercy of these SDKs and these developers. So so apparently too also as a part of this, the data included uh, email addresses, usernames, photos, tweets, as well as, here's the big one, Secret access tokens, uh, which, you know, of course, those could have been misused to take control of your social media accounts. So that's that's also what's really concerning here. How in the heck does an SDK get access to... <laughs> why would an SDK need access to a secret access token? That's that's mind-boggling right there. So so the, the one audience SDK company came out and said that this data was never intended to be collected never added to our database, and never used. <laughs> okay, so why did you have it? <laughs> so anyway, just more and more and more issues with Facebook, privacy. It seems like it's, it's nonstop. The other big news recently about Facebook and other apps as well, um, Facebook in particular was essentially using your camera without your knowledge when you did or even didn't have the Facebook app open on your phone. So, of course, Facebook said that, yeah, this is, you know, we didn't mean to do that, and it certainly was not by design, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, you know, you can take pictures, you know, for Facebook using your phone, and, of course, it you know has to connect at some point. But the fact that it was using the camera and the camera was on, that is what's scary, and that's what the big concern is there. Over the last week or so, they found that other Android apps were doing the same thing. WhatsApp, which I believe is also Facebook-owned, uh, was another app that was identified as doing the same thing, among a whole bunch of others, too, as well. So apparently it was quite prevalent on the Android devices. As far as iOS goes, it was just the Facebook app. But nonetheless, that's 
also very very big privacy concerns there and but I guess the problem is what what are we going to do about it and and when will people start taking it seriously because you know we see this kind of stuff every week that comes out but people still use Facebook and it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon so it's unfortunate but until people really start caring about privacy then I think this kind of stuff is just going to continue to happen and all we can do as privacy advocates is just you know, inform people, educate them, let them know why it's an invasion of privacy. And, you know, people can obviously make their own decisions on whether or not they want to remove Facebook or, or whatever. But I think a lot of people are so ingrained in Facebook with their families. And it's, you know, one of the very few ways that families, you know, across the United States communicate or even overseas for that matter. If you have family overseas and you know, you use Facebook to communicate, uh, send pictures about the kiddos and, you know, whatever it is, right? Family photos, all that stuff is out there on Facebook. And sometimes it's the only way that that information gets out there. We don't we don't typically pick up the phone anymore and call each and every one of our relatives. We just post it on Facebook and tell the relatives, hey, it's on Facebook. Or don't even tell them that. They just go out there and find it, right? So I think that's part of the, I guess, part of the issue, if you want to call it that, for people not moving away from Facebook as quickly. There's really no big second name alternative out there. There are plenty, but people just don't know they exist yet and or don't want to move to it uh, because not everybody is using some secondary platform, right? Facebook is heavily used by pretty much everybody. And whatever the, the second place social media platform would be, you know, you'd have to make sure that all of your family is also on whatever system that was. So until we get a strong number two competitor in the social media game that rivals Facebook, I think a lot of these things with Facebook will continue to happen and people are going to keep their accounts just simply for that reason. They don't want to lose contact with those family members and rightfully so, right? But anyway, that was that was probably the biggest news over the last couple of weeks with, with Facebook and, and privacy related stuff. It seems to be a, an ongoing thing with the old Facebook folks. All right, so on to some other cybersecurity-related news here. There's a new, uh, I guess, warning. My favorite things, you know, new warnings that come out every week. And essentially, they're basically saying that don't use any public USB charging stations. Apparently, these are now being used for malicious activities. And they're essentially saying to, if you're going to use those, make sure you're using a what they call a no-data cable that's only for charging. So, really interesting stuff there. I guess you could always charge up to a little uh, spare battery tank kind of thing if you carry one of those around with you. But they're saying basically don't use these public USB charging stations because now they are being targeted. Uh, whether it's at a airport, hotel, or wherever else that has them, uh, they're basically saying that these uh, may contain malware. And the vast majority of these uh, USB charging stations were meant to be used for data as as well unfortunately and there's basically no barrier between charging and data and some researchers also found that they can do uh, their own type of attack that makes it look like you know they're just charging the device but still sending data to the device and they're calling it uh, juice jacking that's a new a new one on me but essentially they can make it look like it's just sending charging signals to and from the phone when in fact they're actually sending some malware potentially so so it's pretty wild stuff. They're also mentioning here in this article to not use the 
USB charging bricks. If you see those out in public, don't use those either because those can be doing a lot more than just the USB ports in the uh, typical charging stations that you see out there. So be careful on those as well. So that was pretty interesting stuff there. I'm, I guess I'm not surprised, but first time I've actually seen that being used for malicious activity. So if you travel a lot, you might want to carry around a little battery pack with you and or just plug directly into the wall rather than using those big public uh, charging stations that are out there. Or again, use the no data cable. All right, some other cybersecurity related news. Of course, there's been multiple breaches and data leaks and you name it. A uh, couple of the data leaks here. There was a misconfigured AWS S3 storage bucket that was exposing information on patients of substance abuse uh, facilities. So yet again, another misconfigured <laughs> S3 bucket out there. And I bet you can guess what the next one is, huh? What the next bucket is. Everybody say it with me. Elasticsearch. Yay, there's another one of those out there. This was the bigger of the two data leaks. They're saying it's 1.2 billion uh, records that were exposed, a total of 4 terabytes of personal data, including social media profiles, work histories, and home and mobile phone numbers. I guess the good news there is it didn't contain credit card numbers or socials or passwords or anything else. But nonetheless, that's still... A lot of data that could be used for social engineering tactics. And the company that uh, was collecting all this data is called People Data Labs. And they're what's called a, they're calling themselves a data broker. And they sell that kind of information. And they basically had 1.5 billion people included in all those records. 1.5 billion. That is a ton of people. And that's a ton of Facebook profiles. And that is a ton of work history and personal information just sitting out there. Pretty wild stuff. And again, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised that that kind of thing is happening. It is, of course, unfortunate to see yet another one of these. But I guess that's why we have the good guys out there looking, you know, scouring the web, looking on Shodan, and looking for these open databases out there and, and shutting these things off because it seems to be... Well, it actually it is. It's a weekly occurrence and doesn't seem to be getting any better, really. And kind of to spin off of that, um, I had a listener reach out on Twitter and was talking about uh, the PII that's used by employers and all the various headhunter kind of jobs uh, that, you know, of course, you go and apply for a job or you get a recruiting company, get you a job, whatever that is. And apparently they, you know, they're of course going to take all your personal information, all the iterations of your resume, anything else that they can get about you. And they're also apparently using some of this information against you if you, let's say you don't take the job that they're trying to set you up with. They'll put you on their own, uh, I guess they call it their own little blacklist, if you will, that all of the other recruiting companies know to go look at and say, oh, this guy didn't accept the last job. He's on the blacklist. We're not going to bother even working with this guy because he's probably not going to accept the job. So that right there in and of itself, I mean, using that kind of stuff against you is is quite wrong on so many levels, right? I mean, they're basically abusing your personal information and abusing the knowledge that, that they get from you know, trying to line you up with a job. And you could have a million different reasons why you don't want to take that particular job. 
you know, what if you got another offer that was outside of that recruiting firm? You know, what if you got another offer that was just a better company and the recruiting firm didn't know about it? So, yeah, you had to decline their offer. Well, they could, they're going to put you on a blacklist now and communicate that with all the others. And in communicating that, of course, all of your personal information is going to go out with that communication. I don't know what they're using for this type of communication, how that information gets shared or spread. But also, too, stop and think about this as well. All those recruiters and all the PII they have on resume, do we have any idea what those recruiting companies do and how they store that data? What do they do with that data and how do they store it? Can you only imagine? <laughs> I mean, I would think that, you know, recruiting is probably, you know, super fast paced. It's, it's constantly always going, blah, 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 whatever. They're not thinking about security. And they have access to quite a bit of personal information. If you think about it, they're going to have all the info on your resume, which is typically your entire work history, and your typically your home address as well as on there, your phone number, your email address. Uh, who knows, right? They could even potentially have some other sort of sensitive PII. I don't know why they might have a social, but I guess that's a possibility in some cases. But nonetheless, it's something to think about when you're going out and using a recruiting firm. How are they going to store your information once you've applied for the job and you've, let's say, you've got the job that you want and you're done using that recruiting firm? What do they do with your resume? Do they just keep it? Do they, I mean, who knows, right? They, do they have some S3 bucket? Do they just throw it all in on the web? <laughs> or some Elasticsearch database with everybody's resume out there? So a lot of things to consider when going out and using those recruiting firms and it really makes me stop and think about what the heck they're doing with personal information. And I think that there should be some sort of mechanism, if you will, for you know people that are looking for a job to be able to call these recruiting firms and say, hey, delete all my data that you have on me. As of right now, I don't know if there's a way to do that legally, unfortunately. Unless you live in California, then I think you could. But either way, for the rest of us, there's not really a way to to get them to delete that information. And it's certainly scary. And, you know, all those recruiters have, have big networks, you know, all across the U.S., I'm sure. So I can just imagine the troves of data that they have about people. It's I'm sure it's staggering. But think about the security of that. And it might make you think twice about some of the things you put on your resume. Maybe you don't put your full home address on the resume. Maybe you just put your name and some sort of burner email address that you've got. Or a burner phone number that you don't, you know, want everybody to get, but you can still accept calls on. Anyway, lots of different ways to, to skin the cat there, but that's definitely something great to think about, though. So kudos to the listener for bringing that up. He's also got a, a post on LinkedIn about it, too. So if you want to go read more on that, you can go out there and check that out as well. But it is interesting to think about, and I, I didn't even think about that angle, to be honest. I... You know, I've used recruiters before, and that was about the last thing on my mind was what they're going to do with my personal data. And now I'm, I'm, I'm really wondering. <laughs> All right, some other news here about API hacks. And it seems like as we get more and more APIs, more and more of these API hacks continue to happen. Uh, this one specifically is about uh, hijacking Docker systems uh, that have exposed APIs. And this, I mean, this again goes back to basic, basic security and security 101, really. It's 
don't open it up to everybody unless you absolutely have to. And if you do have to open it up to everybody, don't allow access into every single bit of sensitive information. You know, if you need to open it up, only allow what, what type of information could be, you know, legitimately put out there publicly that's not super sensitive, rather than having an API where you can access anything on the site or you could make changes to accounts via this API. I mean, some of these APIs allow you to completely manage anything and everything about whatever that site or that system is. And so that's where it gets really hairy if somebody, you know, like, for example, this Docker thing, if you figure out how to hack into those APIs, then you can control the Docker yourself. You can create your own account, sign into that Docker, and do whatever the heck you want with it from there. So again, if you use APIs, if you're at a company that has APIs and you're using them, be very, very cautious about who that gets opened up to, especially if it's going to be opened up publicly, because these API hacks are getting more and more and more prevalent. And I don't think there's going to be any end in sight, especially because, I mean, APIs are super helpful too, right? That's how a lot of systems integrate. You know, that's how a lot of the, the cloud-based SIM vendors work, right? They'll, they'll use APIs to pull logs from one or the other, and the SIM then uses the logs to correlate various events and whatnot. But typically that's all done through an API, right? So they're super, super helpful, but there can be some, some pretty big risk there, too, when you think about it. So maybe even just as simple as using some sort of certificate to be able to access the API is better than, you know, nothing, right? It's better than just leaving it wide open. Anybody can hit it no matter what. Make it to where you have to have some sort of certificate that only certain people could access that certificate, you know, whatever it is. Um, put some more controls around those APIs because... They are definitely a very big attack factor here recently, and I think that will that trend will definitely continue here. All right, some other news here about T-Mobile. Uh, they disclosed a recent uh, breach about their prepaid customers, and you know I saw the the headline on this, and I thought, oh man, this is going to be huge. And I went through and looked at it, and you know it's not the end of the world, I guess, but it kind of goes right along with you know having. All the personal information except for social security numbers and credit card information. They got customer names, billing addresses, phone numbers, account numbers, rate plans, and plan features. And again, this was just for the prepaid uh, customers only. Uh, T-Mobile did say that anybody that was affected by that should have gotten a text message from them and that they should go ahead and change their password just in case, which I found interesting. <laughs> Uh, if if all that they really got was names, addresses, phone numbers, what? Why do we have to change a password? It made it made me think twice when I saw that. But nonetheless, it doesn't look like they got anything too crazy. But that's that's uh, yet another carrier now that's been hacked. Uh, Sprint uh, had a same kind of a similar kind of thing happen uh, earlier this year in May, I believe it was, and Sprint basically said that hackers were uh, able to access customer data via the Samsung official website. Uh, so that was the whole story back in May about Sprint. And Sprint and T-Mobile are merging here pretty soon, too, so heads up on that. All in all, though, not you know too crazy about the T-Mobile stuff there, but you, know, you certainly don't like to see those kinds of things. But I guess in the grand scheme of things, they didn't get anything too terribly sensitive, so that's good. All right, some other news here about Disney+. Plus. Everybody and their mom signed up for Disney Plus, me included. 
and it's a great service it's uh it's been pretty good they had some little bit of service issues when it very first launched because so many people signed up for it but it's uh, doing much better now and the unfortunate part though is within hours of their uh, launch hackers were able to get um, get into these various accounts user accounts and they were locking people out uh, changing credentials on people uh, and also selling them on the dark web so there's there's a whole lot of, of interesting information here about this. So the Disney Plus servers crashed uh, on the 12th of November during the debut. Uh, the company attributed that to the high demand for uh, their services, right? Rightfully so, of course. I'm sure everybody was on there trying to watch, you know, the new Star Wars TV show or whatever it was, right? Uh, but the service got, you know, about 10 million customers, they're saying, within the first uh, 24 hours, so... It's quite a few, but shortly after all these, you know, 10 million people signed up, a bunch of people were complaining that they lost access to their accounts, and all these people were calling in to Disney support, and, you know, of course, Disney support was getting bombarded with all the other service calls, and they basically weren't able to get back into their Disney Plus accounts for a while. Now, Disney Plus came out and said that they take, you know, of course, they're going to say they take security very seriously, and... But they are also saying there's no indication of a security breach on Disney+. Plus. So the question is, how did all these accounts get hacked? So that's the part that still remains a little bit sketchy here. But I've also looked out on, on various hacker forums, and I can confirm that there are tons of Disney Plus credentials out there uh, being given away now for free. So one of the theories about how this happened is the fact that people reuse passwords. Of course, people reuse passwords. It happens all the time. Uh, we know that, for a fact, Netflix gets, you know, they're trying to fish Netflix constantly. I get all kinds of fake Netflix emails about my account expiring and payments failed and all that kind of good stuff, trying to fish for Netflix credentials. And if somebody reuses that password which I'm sure a lot of people did. They want to use the same password for all their streaming stuff. And criminals were doing some password spray attacks with those reused passwords. Boom. Guess what? They've hacked a ton of new accounts. So that's how they're kind of saying that this, you know, that's the, the theory anyway of how all these accounts were hacked so quickly. But if you use Disney Plus and you haven't already changed your password... You might want to. This only they're they're saying it affected thousands of people. So, you know, I'm I know that millions of people have signed up for the service, of course. So the fact that only thousands of them were affected by this, uh, I guess, is sort of good news there. But you know, the likelihood that it's you is is a lot lower. But regardless, Disney Plus is saying it was not their fault. And we know that credential stuffing hacks. You know, that's that's a constant thing that always happens too. So. Not surprised about that one bit. All right, some other cybersecurity news here about some new malware that's come out called AC Backdoor Malware, and it's targeting Linux and Windows. So typically it's Windows that gets targeted. I think we all know that. Uh, Mac occasionally gets targeted, but uh, this particular strain of malware affects both uh, Windows and Linux. But they're saying that this is some pretty damn sophisticated malware. It's able to duck various antivirus products out there. 
but they are saying that it uses the same uh, command and control uh, center and the same protocols to communicate with that command and control. Uh, they're, they're saying on the Linux version of this malware, it's uh, got a few more capabilities, such as renaming processes. So that's interesting that they could rename various processes on your Linux box and hide itself, potentially. So I, th I just thought more than anything, it's interesting to see that now a multi-platform uh, malware is starting to become more and more prevalent. This isn't the first time I've seen this, but I think that this kind of thing is, of course, going to continue and it's going to get more and more prevalent as the adoption of Linux goes. I mean, right now we're we're growing quite a bit in the Linux community. There's, you know, AWS has all those Linux instances you can spin up for little or nothing. And, you know, damn near, what, 80% of the web probably uses Apache for their web server, which is Linux-based as well, typically. You can run it on Windows too, but the vast majority of Apache is running on Linux. So there's definitely a lot more adoption with Linux nowadays than there ever was. So I think this kind of thing is, is going to continue and we'll see more and more malware uh, targeted for multiple operating systems. All right, so let's jump over to the cryptocurrency side of things. And first and foremost, I think probably the biggest news is the price. What the hell happened? <laughs> uh, Bitcoin went way the hell down. As of right now, today, we're sitting at $7,082. So what the heck happened? Well... Probably the biggest news of the last couple of weeks is the fact that China shut down the Binance office in China and vowed to basically take out any other uh, cryptocurrencies that had physical offices in China. Uh, so they raided the Binance office in Shanghai and closed it down. And shortly thereafter, we see the, the price of Bitcoin just absolutely tank. And what's really weird is... China came out a couple of weeks ago and they were advocating the use of blockchain technology only to completely flip the script a week later and say, no, we're going to we're going to basically raid and shut down any and all cryptocurrency exchanges that have physical locations in China. So the suspicion there is that China wants to control the cryptocurrency. They want to create their own cryptocurrency, probably and force people to only use their own cryptocurrency and not uh, somebody else's. So that's the suspicion at least, but that is why we saw the massive price dip, unfortunately. And some people are saying we could drop down even a little bit further. Gosh, I hope not. Um, nonetheless, uh, if you know, even if it does go down to, let's say, 6K, we're still, we've still doubled for the year. If you go back and look at January, we were in the 2800 range. So, you know, overall, over the entire year, if it does go down to, to 6K or so, then, you know, we still doubled our money for this year. But I, I hate to see that because it was, was doing so great there. We touched 13,000 a couple months ago. And you know, now all of a sudden, China just comes out and absolutely crashes it. <laughs> so if you're wondering what the heck happened to your Bitcoins... That is the problem right there. We can all point a finger at China and blame them for this. Uh, some other crypto news. Uh, this one's kind of funny. U Ukrainian railways. Uh, one of their branches was caught mining crypto with the state's power. <laughs> uh, so some of the employees there were, were mining cryptocurrency at work using the, 
the railways, power systems, and electricity. That's kind of funny there. Some other crypto news too. Uh, JP Morgan, they're testing a new private blockchain for tracking the automobile uh, inventory that they have for you know financing and for car dealers and all that kind of good stuff. So that is now in uh, private beta testing. So interesting to see that uh, JP Morgan Chase is getting on that bandwagon as well. Uh, looks like they're developing this uh, this blockchain system in-house. So it is their own flavor of it. And earlier this year, we know that they have already started using blockchain for uh, internal payments going to and from various places. So uh, sounds like they're branching out quite a bit using some blockchain tech. So that's pretty cool to see. Oh, yeah, one more here. I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but there's a, I guess it's a new algorithm uh, being used with crypto now. Uh, it's called Proof of Authority Algorithm. And they're saying that uh, people like Walmart, GE, uh, and several others are now starting to use Proof of Authority to track supply chains. Uh, Microsoft has also done a little bit of work with Proof of Authority. I have not even heard of this until I saw this article here. Uh, mostly we've seen Proof of Work, which is mining, Proof of Stake, which is just staking or holding the crypto in your wallet to earn rewards. And apparently in this uh, Proof of Authority uh, consensus algorithm, it, uh, it doesn't use mining, of course. And they're saying that all transactions and blocks are processed by approved accounts, which they're calling validators, uh, that, are, that basically replace the miners. And so because of that, there's no need to spend you know, vast amounts of money on resources to help with performance. So you don't have to get a bunch of graphics cards. You don't need all kinds of electricity to mine for whatever this is and to help run that blockchain. So proof of authority apparently is going to get a lot more adoption here. So that's interesting. I have never even heard of this one before, but I guess keep an eye out for that. I'll post the article in the show notes if you want to read more about it. But it's certainly interesting to, to see this new algorithm out there. So all right, that's it for the cryptocurrency side of things. As far as the sidebar topic today, I was going to talk a little bit about the differences between Proofpoint and Mimecast. And there's a lot of debate between, you know, the two companies, which one's better, which one's worse. And what's interesting, I guess, from the experiences I've had, I've, I've migrated to and from each of them. So I've seen it from a lot of different angles and perspectives. We've seen clients moving to Proofpoint or moving away from Proofpoint to Mimecast. And it's interesting all the various reasons that they do this kind of thing and they move back and forth between these two companies. Uh, they are probably two of the most, uh, I'd say they're upper echelon of, of filtering, spam filtering and whatnot uh, companies out there. So they're definitely two of the better ones, in my opinion at least. And some of the biggest differences though that I've seen are the price. Uh, number one is the price, for sure. Uh, for whatever reason, Mimecast just doesn't charge as much as Proofpoint. Uh, why, I don't know. But a lot of customers were able to get way more services through Mimecast and pay still pay less than what they were paying with Proofpoint for fewer services. So that was probably the biggest uh, difference that I've seen between the two. Now, we've had customers move away from Mimecast because they felt like it wasn't doing a good enough job. So that's why they switched over to Proofpoint. 
Um, and, you know, same thing goes for the other way around. Some some folks thought that Proofpoint wasn't doing a good job, so they switched over to Mimecast. So it just kind of goes both ways there. Um, some of the other big differences that I've seen, uh, Mimecast also offers their fishing training uh, program through that. Proofpoint does as well now. Uh, Proofpoint bought uh, Wombat Security, I believe it was, and so they do all their fishing training through that. Uh, so those kind of services are now being bundled in with your uh, standard phishing stuff, so that's I guess that's good to see. Uh, you don't have to go out and get a separate service from the company like No Before or, or similar. But the other, I'd say, aside from the cost, the other biggest difference between the two platforms is the interfaces that you have to use for uh, managing and administering both platforms. So the, the downside with Proofpoint is there are probably, I want to say like four or five different consoles that you have to log into just to be able to do all the administrative tasks. Whereas Mimecast kind of has it all into one place now. So that's, I think that bodes well for Mimecast. Less systems to log into, uh, less interfaces to have to learn. It's all one simple unified interface. Uh, it all has kind of the same similar theme and you're able to navigate it because it's familiar Uh Mimecast does break off their uh, phishing training uh, into a separate interface, but nonetheless, it's it's still mostly combined. Whereas Proofpoint, they've got you know their tap dashboard, which you have to get to via you know one site, and then they've got your your actual Proofpoint device console that you can get into. Then they've got uh, if you have a what they call a threat remediate threat response auto pull server, they call it their trap server. If you have one of those and you got to log into that separately because it's on site, you know, there's a lot of different things that you have to manage uh, with the proof point side of things. So that was probably the other biggest difference between the two. Uh, there are some other, you know, subtle nuances between Mimecast and Proofpoint, But I think the biggest thing that, that people want these services for, not only the, of course, the basic malware and spam filtering and whatnot, URL protection, but impersonation or imposters, um, that is probably the the top reason why people need services like that. Uh, and when I say impersonation, it's somebody, you know, using the display name of your CEO, for example, and emailing somebody at the company saying they need to wire a bunch of money out. Um, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about impersonation. And from the from the looks of it, I would say that Proofpoint probably does a slight slightly better job at the impersonation filtering. Uh, Mimecast does leave a little bit of a window open when it comes to impersonation, which I'm personally not a huge fan of their little window that they leave open. They allow you to uh, email yourself from your personal accounts, which, you know, you'd think in most cases that's that's probably not a big deal. You know, that's fine, whatever. But at the same time, if you think about that, if somebody's personal account gets hacked, you know, and they think, oh, this is, you know, I must have sent myself this reminder or whatever this morning. Let me click on this and boom, you know, it could be some ransomware or something crazy. You never know. I mean, there's always that possibility. I'm, of course, the worst case scenario guy. So I always want to think about the absolute worst thing ever. But nonetheless, that is still, in my eyes at least, that's still a, a pretty big vulnerability or a gap, I would say, with, you know, using... Mimecast's imposter or impersonation services versus Proofpoints. Proofpoints blocks 
any and all usage of the same display name, period, end of story. And, you know, that's great. There's a lot of uh, overhead, I would say, that goes with that. You do have to explicitly allow and deny certain accounts if you wanted to. And so I think that's where Mimecast was coming from. They're like, well, we should allow... I mean, because people email themselves all the time. And we see that constantly with Proofpoint. Proofpoint's blocking it the vast majority of the time. And I think that's where Mimecast said, you know what? It's okay to email yourself. We're going to go ahead and allow that so that you don't have to constantly go in and release messages and things like that. So I guess it depends on the way you, you look at that imposter mode and the various settings there to to administer it if you look at it like me your worst case scenario guy and it just seems like that's that's a little more of a gap than i want to leave open personally but is it the end of the world no it's not of course not Uh, both companies have a lot of the same offerings too they both do uh, internal mail filtering through journaling connectors Uh, both companies have email archiving they They both pretty much have all the other same services. But um, anyway, those are kind of the few biggest, I'd say, differences between the two companies. And thus far, I haven't really heard that Mimecast is is horrible. And I I don't know why they're just so much less expensive than Proofpoint either. That's that's kind of the fascinating thing to me. Usually it's you get what you pay for. But uh, so far from everybody that I've talked to, they've said that it's, you know, it's doing just as good as Proofpoint did. So... Anyway, food for thought for everybody out there. If you're looking for a spam filter, it's certainly interesting to to compare and contrast those two. But uh, for what it's worth, Mimecast has been way less expensive. But, you know, it does leave a few gaps there if you're concerned about that kind of thing. But overall, I think they're both going to do a great job regardless. But anyway, it's just kind of some of my perspective on those as I've dealt with migrations to and from each one of those platforms. All right, folks, that's all I've got for today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at CyberCryptoGuy, at CyberCryptoGuy on Twitter. Check me out on there. I retweet a bunch of the articles that we talk about here on the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.